Yes, we are in the Easter season. We are celebrating Palm Sunday. Of course, Palm Sunday, the entrance of our Lord into Jerusalem for Holy Week, what is often called Holy Week. And this week, we're going to be spending some special time focusing on Holy Week. In your bulletin is a little Holy Week schedule. And it goes through each day of this week, except for Saturday. We'll give you Saturday off. Jesus was in the grave doing a bunch of stuff on Saturday. But that's sort of what I have planned this out for. Uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, each day from noon to one here in the sanctuary, we're going to have a service. We'll have a little devotional teaching, remembering something that Jesus was doing on that day during Holy Week. And we'll also spend some time uh, just in meditation and prayer together and worship. So uh, if you have an opportunity during the week, please come in during the noon hour and uh, look forward to Easter. Also, next Sunday, we are having our Easter brunch. We have some more sign-ups here for those of you who have not yet signed up. If you have, thank you. Carrie, I will hand this to you. So uh, we want to get as broad a participation as possible. And the Easter brunch is always a wonderful time, always a great time of fellowship and celebration. Also, Next week, on Friday, we're having a Good Friday service in the evening at 7 o'clock here in the church. Following the Good Friday service, we are going to begin our annual prayer vigil. And I think many, if not most of you, have signed up for that. The sign-ups are back on the bulletin board. If you haven't signed up but would like to, just look up there. Again, as I said, most of the slots are signed up for, but just double on a time that is convenient for you. Sign up your name, come into the church here, and pray. Along that line, in the pew in front of you, there are cards. Some of the cards are white, some of them are blue, some of them are pink. But all of them are awaiting you to write in a prayer request. Now, I talked about this a little bit last week. But the Lord says to cast all of our cares upon him, for he cares for us. And I know, because I'm your pastor, and I hear about everything that's going on, that we have many needs in this congregation. And certainly around the world, there are things that we can be praying for. And right now we have about 15 prayer cards that have been completed. So I would ask that each one of you fill out one or more prayer cards with prayer needs specific to you, specific to our community, specific to our country, specific to our world. God has no limitation. And then during the week or today, if you are able to write it out before you leave today, drop it in the prayer box in the back. We will accumulate them all together, and that will be the basis off of which we conduct our prayer vigil. So, got a prayer need. Make sure it gets written down so that others can pray for you. We're going through a series on the glorious gospel, and we're going to uh, finish it next week on Easter with a message on the second coming or the return of the king. But in the sequencing of the gospel, as I have prepared it for this series, Right now, t- 
today we are entering into a study on something that was actually a mystery. Something that no one foresaw coming. How many of you out here this morning like to read mysteries? What is it that makes a mystery interesting? There's always something that is hidden, isn't there? Something that someone does not know that will at some point during the story be revealed. Well, the mystery in the gospel is the church. I want to read a passage of Scripture out of Ephesians chapter 3. Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations. So all of the generations previous to the time of Christ and the generation of the apostles and the prophets did not know or understand this truth. It was a mystery hidden from them. But now it has been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery, Paul is going to reveal it here to us, is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are now heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Jesus Christ. So the joining of the church there on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came in a rushing wind and tongues of fire set upon the disciples and they all began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The introduction of the Spirit into the church was always intended to include the Gentile nations. It wasn't just a Jewish thing. And one of the interesting things about the Feast of Pentecost was that when they would take the bread, the loaves, and wave the loaves before the Lord. There would be two loaves that they would wave before the Lord. And these loaves represented the joining together of the Jewish nation and the Gentile nations into one body, the Lord's people, the church. It was a mystery. But Jesus knew what he was going to do. He was preaching to his disciples, and he asked the people, who do the, or he asked the disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and yet others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied to him and said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father. And I tell you that you are Peter, a little rock, Petros. And on this rock, Petra, big rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. 
So Peter responded with a recognition and acknowledgement of who Jesus was. Jesus wasn't just another in a long string of prophets. Jesus was uniquely the Son of God, the Messiah. And Peter recognized that by revelation from the Father. He had that faith, that belief. And Jesus said that that faith, that Petra, that solid rock foundation would be what he would build his church upon. So Jesus knew what he intended to do and how he would build his church. He would build his church through faith, through belief in the gospel. And Peter gave a demonstration of what you and I and every person throughout the ages from the resurrection forward has done. And that is to recognize that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, risen from the dead, conqueror over death and hell. Listen to what Jesus says. The gates of hell, or Hades, will not overcome it. Will not overcome what? My church. I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This he ordered his disciples And then he told them not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah, for the time was not yet ripe. But he was the Messiah, and he would, through faith, build his church. That's how you become a part of the church. Now, the the term church here is a word, it, it is actually not necessarily used in religious sense at this time. Ecclesia. It simply meant a calling out a calling out and a gathering together. So it could be used for a variety of purposes, just wherever people were called away from some activity into another activity and joined together in that activity. So Jesus said, I will build my church, my ecclesia, my called out ones on this solid rock foundation of faith. So the church the visible representation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's you and me. The church's nature is is entirely unique. It's entirely unique. It's not a religious organization. Do you know that? That the church is not a religious organization? Anything but. It's actually a living entity that God has designed. It's an institution of living beings that are called out to join together in worship of Jesus Christ. The nature of the church is eternal. It was always in the mind of God. Each one of you here this morning has always been in the mind of God. You were named in his mind from before the foundation of the world, according to Ephesians chapter 1. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, that's pretty encouraging. That somewhere in eternity past, the name Greg Meyer was in God's mind. He knew me. And he called me by name. 
out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Likewise, so he has done with each one of you. And as he has done that, you have become a participant in the body of Christ, the church. So the church is eternal, but the church is also historical within time. The church began on the day of Pentecost and has existed unto this day and will continue to exist until the Lord returns with the shout, with the voice of the archangel, when the dead in Christ will rise first and we who are alive and remain will be called up together with him. So the church is historical. It has a beginning and an ending within time. The church, as I said, is visible. I look out here this morning and I see the church of Jesus Christ, people who have been called out to be gathered together. But the church also is invisible in that it's not merely attendance at a church service that includes you within the church, but it's a new birth. It's being born again of the Spirit of God. Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless you are born again of the Spirit And of the water, Nicodemus, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. So the church is invisible in the sense that it is a spiritual entity. The church is local. Here this morning, we are gathered together to worship God, to sing His praises, to hear His words spoken, to love one another. And we are localized. We have gathered together. For the most part, every person in this building knows most everyone else. But the church is also worldwide. The church is worldwide. How many of you read the news this morning about the bombing of the Coptic Christian churches in Egypt? Over, I think at this point, 40-some dead, well over 100 injured. Those are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Part of the church, part of the body of Christ. So the church is worldwide. It's cross-cultural. So the church is this unique entity that we exist as a part of. So what is the purpose of the church? What is the purpose of the church? Well, The purpose of the church primarily is relationship. First and foremost, relationship between us, the created beings that God has fashioned, and the creator. God had always intended that fellowship that was broken through the sin of Adam would be restored through the gospel the good news, the shed blood, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he would bring a community of faith back to himself to be in relationship with him, in intimate fellowship with him. You know, if you study the New Testament, and many of you have done this, you understand this, that the imagery that that the writers of the New Testament use to describe the church are all about relationship and intimacy. Peter describes the church as a collection of living stones fit together 
side by side, built up as a temple or a dwelling place for God. So each one of us is a living stone that fit together, situated just as God intends, so that God can come and dwell among us. As I mentioned, Jesus speaks of the new birth, how we are born into a spiritual relationship with God. We are His children by birth. Jesus said that we are sons and daughters of the Father. In in John chapter 1, He came to His own, but His own received Him not. But to whomever did receive Him, He gave the power to become sons and daughters of God. So there's that familial relationship that we have when we believe in Jesus Christ. We come into a family relationship with Him. Not only that, we have full privilege as sons and daughters of God because Paul talks about the fact that we are also adopted into His family. And that's very significant. It's a little bit different, perhaps, than we understand what adoption is. In the biblical sense, what adoption is is a recognition that someone who has been outside of the family has been joined in legally to the family and has full benefit, full access to all of the privileges, all of the resources that the family possesses. So you, as an adopted son or daughter of God, have full access to the privileges, the resources, the relationship with God. The Bible also talks about us as being the body of Christ. Paul, several times in his epistles, writes of us being Christ's body. Again, a very close and intimate relationship. A part of him, literally. Paul says, some of us are eyes, some of us are ears, some of us are feet, some of us are hands. But we all have a part in Christ's body to play. He is the head, but we are the remainder of the body that he's being fitted together for his purpose. Again, do you you see the pattern here? Living stones, new birth, adoption into his body. And finally, and perhaps most brilliantly, in my view at least, is we, the church, are called the bride of Christ. Now, of all human relationships, perhaps the most intimate is that between a husband and a wife. The two, the Bible says, shall become one. There's a joining together from which springs, of course, family. But in Revelation 19, it says to rejoice for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. So there will come a time where where there will be a feast in the heavenly place where the church of God will gather together as the bride of Christ, joining in that special love relationship with God. And it says that he will gird himself, he being Jesus Christ, 
and serve us. Isn't that a beautiful picture of love and of intimacy? That's who we are, people, as the church. This mystery that Jesus is building for relationship with him. But not only relationship with him, not only that vertical relationship with God is intended, but absolutely a horizontal relationship with one another is intended through the purpose of the church. The church comes together and gathers in remembrance of Jesus Christ. We celebrated uh, the, the Lord's table. Whenever you do this, Jesus said, do it in remembrance of me. So there was that intention that the church regularly gather, and it absolutely has done that from the very earliest days, gathering on Sunday in recognition of remembrance of the Lord's resurrection. And so the church has always gathered together, held what they called in the early days of the church love feasts, where they would share meals together. The rich, the poor, the free, the slave, men and women, everyone gathered together in one place to remember Jesus, to hear the teaching of the apostles and the prophets, to join in fellowship with their lives. It talks about in Acts chapter 2 how the people laid their offerings at the feet of the apostles and the apostles would distribute to anybody as they had need. They had such intimate fellowship with one another that they were willing to lay down of their very sustenance in order to provide for others within the body who had need. That's the type of fellowship they shared. It was koinonia. It was a concept of fellowship where people had skin in the game, an investment in the enterprise, a recognition that my reality is connected to these people's reality in a very real and a tangible and literally eternal way. That's the church. So we have relationship with one another. You know, you have heard it. I have heard it. Perhaps you have said it. I think I probably have said it. I don't know that I really feel like going to church. I don't really need to be in church. In fact... For a season, after Christy and I stopped pastoring in Fruta, we did exactly that. We went up to the Colorado National Monument, and we were worshiping God among the rocks. We needed a time away. But what we very, very quickly found was that you cannot continue that. You cannot sustain that. It was never intended by God that anyone worship him in isolation. He intends his children to gather together, to love one another, to carry out the mission of the gospel. Go ye therefore into all the world, preaching the gospel, baptizing men in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, making disciples of all nations. We have that call. Jesus also said, he said, the Father seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. So we gather together to corporately worship the Father, to carry out the work of discipleship, to evangelize. But perhaps most importantly and most significantly, the reason 
church, that we gather together in a horizontal sense is to learn how to love one another. Because when you enter into relationship with someone, in a biblical sense, in a Christian sense, love is the key. I mean, we can call ourselves brothers and sisters in Christ, and indeed we are. But unless we carry out love towards one another, we're missing the mark. Jesus intends for us to love one another. John said in in his first epistle, how can we say that we love God the Father whom we have not seen when we do not love our brother or our sister whom we have seen? Now, if you're isolating yourself in worship, you're going out into the mountains to worship, you're worshiping at home, you're never coming together with the body of Christ, you're never encountering people who think, act, or feel differently than you do, how are you going to grow in love? How are you going to know about the needs that other people have that you can perhaps meet? Or how are they going to know about the needs that you have that perhaps they can meet. In Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews brings this issue and puts it to rest. He said, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised us is faithful. And let us consider, pay attention here, how we may spur one another on toward love and good works. Not giving up gathering together, as some are in the habit of doing, but rather encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. So we have to come together. We cannot forsake that. And why? For the purpose of spurring one another onto love and to good works. To be representatives of our Lord and Savior who loved us and gave himself for us. Jesus, it says in Philippians chapter 2, Though he was God, did not esteem equality with God something to be grasped, but rather he emptied himself to the point of becoming a servant, taking on human flesh and humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. So if that's our example, how much more ought we, church? This is the exhortation here this morning. How much more ought we to gather together to embrace in love those who share a like precious faith? Yeah, We are different. We are diverse. Paul talks about that. We're all different parts of the body. But within that diversity, within that uniqueness that each one of us brings to this ecclesia, this church of people called out, is a unity. I want to read out of John chapter 17. These are Jesus' words. Father, the hour has come. 
glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So Jesus introduces this prayer, this high priestly prayer, by a recognition of where eternal life originates. Much the same as Peter expressed. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. So too, eternal life is by knowing Jesus Christ, whom the Father has sent. That's where it begins. But it's not where it ends. Jesus says, I have revealed you, Father, to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now, they know that everything you have given me comes from you, and I gave them the words you gave them, or gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I have come from you, and they believe that you have sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given to me. So this is a prayer for the church. For they are yours, and all I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. So as you see there, in the midst of the diversity that the church is, comes the prayer that Jesus makes that we would be one just as the Son and the Father are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name that you gave me. None has been lost except for the one doomed to destruction so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. My prayer, Father, is not for them alone. This is the part I love. I have this underlined, highlighted in every Bible that I own. My prayer is not for them alone. But I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So down through the ages, church, this prayer has been fulfilled for every generation up until today, this morning. Us. Jesus' prayer was intended to reach our lives. What is his prayer? That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them, you in me, so that they may know and be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me, and I have loved them even as you have loved me. So Jesus' prayer, Jesus' heart about all of those who come into eternal life through him in this prayer to the Father, Jesus' heart is that we would be one in love just as he and the Father are one. The only way we can do that, church, is by gathering together, by having koinonia with one another, sharing one another's lives, joining our lives with skin in the game and investment in the well-being and the welfare of each other, being concerned for what happens 
to our Coptic Christian brothers and sisters in Egypt. Just as I am concerned with each one of you. Paul says, as a prisoner of the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling which you have received. Be humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort, every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So the message here this morning is that you are the mystery that God revealed through his apostles and holy prophets that he would join his people together, Jew and Gentile, into one body, a holy temple, a family that would one day be presented to him as a chaste bride. There's a passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 13, a parable that Jesus told about a pearl of great price. He says, when the merchant realized that there was this pearl of great price, he went and sold all he had so that he might purchase it. In that parable, the pearl is the church. Jesus gave his life, gave everything that he had in order to possess us. How does a pearl start out? It's a little piece of sand irritating an oyster. It's worthless. It's not good for anything. But in the, the, the nurturing environment of the oyster, it becomes something beautiful. Likewise, the church, the bride of Christ, though we are as filled with faults and failures as any entity could be, the Bible promises us this, that when we are presented to him as a bride, we will be without spot, without wrinkle, a pure and a chaste bride. And as I said, that passage in Revelation 19 says, for us to rejoice, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. The marriage supper is here, and his bride has made herself ready. Whew, wow, that's exciting. And that's what we're going to talk about next week on Easter. We have a hope that we look forward to as the church, as the people of God, as the bride of Christ. We have a hope that we look forward to, the return of Jesus Christ. And there's great reason for us to hope and to rejoice today. And we'll talk about that next week. It's exciting. It's exciting. And Jesus said, when you see these things coming, happening, occurring, look up to heaven and rejoice your redemption draws near. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we've been called together out of darkness into your marvelous light, that each and every person here this morning who has proclaimed, as Peter did, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and has placed their faith in you, has become a part of an intimate collection of people who you have filled with your Spirit and have named as your people. 
Lord, I pray for each and every one of us here this morning that we would make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, that we join together and grow in love as your people, and that we would carry out the mission that you have given to us as the church to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ and God the Father through the power of the Spirit. In his name we pray, amen.